you have your Bibles this morning, I'll invite you to take them out and turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. Mark, chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. So how do you know if you are a disciple of Christ? How do you know if you're a disciple of Christ? Is there a test that you can take? It would be nice if there was just you could show up at church and check a few boxes and figure out some kind of formula and equation and just kind of fill it out and present it to the teacher or the preacher and let them grade it for you, give you a grade so that you can go home and just say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a disciple and I know. Well, that's not, of course, the way that... The test of Christ works. You can't simply go to church and know that you are a disciple of Christ. You can't simply be a good person and know that you're a disciple. And it really has nothing to do with your theology or your theological sophistication or or how well you can articulate certain formulas of the faith. None of that sort of stuff tells you if you are truly a disciple. But in these few verses that we're going to read this morning and And hear from God about, Jesus gives us some tests, some ways that we can evaluate ourselves. Let me read this for us. This is Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 38, and I'll read through the end of the the chapter. Remember, this is God's good and kind word to you this morning. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him If a great millstone were hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding his word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word, even uh, with its harshness, uh, even with the things that are hard to understand and difficult to hear. Lord, we know that this is your good word for us. I pray that you would help us to hear it, that we would respond to it through faith, And by faith in Jesus Christ, we pray these things in his holy name. Amen. Well, some of the things that you see here is, I mean, this is a, this is harsh language. This is, this is very hard to hear. Jesus talks about 
hell. I was reminded uh, yesterday uh, something that one of my professors said. He was Welsh. He, he grew up in the United Kingdom. He has a literal king, right, uh, a king that he could see and a queen that they served because they were the subjects of the king and the queen. And he, he told a story of, of one of the monarchs. Uh, he didn't give the name of which one, but the monarchs that um, they, they would go to church every week. You know, they would go to the, the Westminster Abbey. Uh, where the Westminster Confession of Faith was written and all those things. If you don't know what the Westminster Confession of Faith is, I would love to tell you about it. Uh, it's a wonderful document, a document that this church uses as what, part of the Constitution anyway. There's this long history of Christianity at Westminster Abbey where the, the royal family worships. And after one of the worship services, this monarch went up to, to the minister, to the vicar, to the man that was over it all and pretty much... The, the top of the line in terms of the Church of England. And, and this monarch, this man said, tell me, do you believe in hell? And the monarch got, I mean, the, the, the vicar, the, the priest got very nervous because here was the man that could fire him if he said the wrong thing. And he got nervous and he said, well, he thought about it and he thought he came up with a very good answer. He said, well, Jesus believed in hell. He said, well, Paul believed in hell, and all of the apostles, they talk about it. And then the monarch looked at the, at the priest and says, well, then why don't you ever tell us about hell? Why would you withhold this information from us, the people of God? Thankfully, Jesus here talks about hell. And he talks about it in... Uh, I hope you see this. He talks about it in personal terms. He talks about it in intimate ways because Jesus made hell for people that are disobedient to him. We need to pay attention to this word. Before he gets into talking about hell, though, uh, Jesus talks about who his real disciples are. And look at verses 38 uh, through 41. Um, we're given kind of the motive test here for knowing if you're really a disciple of Christ, the motive test. John, now this is the Apostle John. Uh, this was, he was the youngest of the disciples. That's what most people think, he was the youngest of the disciples. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Because he was not following us. Now what's interesting about this is that if you know anything about the Apostle John is that after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Apostle John was known as the Apostle of Love. He was known as the one disciple that, that talked about the love of God more than anyone else. Uh, John, at the end of his life, uh, he had some disciples that would record his messages, that would write down every single thing that he said. And at the end of his life, John was so old. He was the only disciple that was not killed for the sake of Christ. He was so old that when it was time for him to preach, he would, he would kind of make his way to the front. He would have to sit, and all he would say is, Beloved, love one another. Beloved, love one another. That's all that he could say over and over and over. And it was the message that he wanted to get across. It's almost like he's... Remembering back to what Jesus says at the very end of this passage, be at peace with 
one another. We'll get to that in a minute. But notice what John says here. He says, Jesus, we saw this man helping someone and we told him to stop. Jesus, we saw this man casting out a demon and we thought, no, you should not cast out a demon. Why don't you just stay in that man and terrorize him for the rest of his life? That's preferable. That's essentially what John is saying. Jesus, we saw a man who was casting out a demon and we told him to stop because he wasn't following us. You get the the point of what John was saying here. John's saying we want people to be like us and to follow us and to to have us as an authority. And Jesus says, Don't stop someone from doing something good, especially for the motive he was doing it, for the reason why he was doing it. Don't stop someone from doing something in my name. That's what he says. Jesus, they were casting out demons in your name, but we told him to stop. Jesus says, don't do that. For anyone who does a mighty work in my name will not be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. Jesus says, don't stop people from doing good especially if they're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't, and he says the reason why you shouldn't stop him is because he isn't serving himself. He's serving me. Now, here's a point of application in this one section, the motive test. The point of application for us is we need as Christian people, as disciples of Christ, to major on the major things. Not major on the minors. We need to be people who are thrilled to death that the name of Jesus is going out into the world. Now, we have some theological things that make us a Presbyterian church. Okay, We have distinctives. And I'm very proud of our Presbyterian distinctives. But there are some things of being Presbyterian that I'm not going to get all that upset about. I have theology. I have theology that I love. I love theology. But there's just some things that I'm not going to be worried about, especially if a man is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we don't agree theologically, if he's still preaching the gospel, he's preaching the gospel. Um, this week I had a friend that simply on Facebook put, the Nephilim are real. Does anybody nod your head if you know what the Nephilim are? Anyone? Y'all know what the Nephilim are? Right. Okay. The Nephilim are, it's, the name Nephilim is mentioned three times in the Bible, and no one knows what they are. The, the Nephilim are the giants that are talked about in Genesis chapter 6. We, we don't really know. We're not given much information about who they are. My friend just said the Nephilim are real which I wholeheartedly agree with. And then for 300 comments, men were going back and forth arguing about the Nephilim. And then they started saying, if you believe that, then you are not a Christian. They made who the Nephilim are the standard for orthodoxy. Brothers and sisters, we need to major on the major things. Go home and look up the Nephilim. It's fascinating stuff. But if you're going to tell me that you can't be a Christian because you think the Nephilim are angels we got a problem. It's a minor thing. We need to be majoring on the majors. And we need to rejoice that Jesus Christ is going forth. I'm reformed in theology. I'm a Calvinist. The dirty word, the Calvinist, that's what I am. 
The Arminians don't believe the same things that the Calvinists do, and yet we preach the same gospel. I'm not going to be upset about an Arminianist, Arminian preaching the gospel because they preach the gospel. We are not dispensational in our theology. We are covenantal in our theology. We have different views from dispensationalists about how God saves people. And yet, we still believe that it's through faith in Jesus Christ. So while I will not be preaching dispensational theology, I will be preaching Jesus Christ. And for those that preach Jesus and the minor things, we can go a long way with them. And that's what Jesus says here. Don't stop people from doing good in my name. You may not agree with everything that they do, but they're doing it in the name of Jesus. Major on the major. Secondly, verses 42 through 48, these are the hard words that he gives here. These are the hard things. And I think what Jesus is pointing to here is look at what you trust in. This is the trust test. So he gave the motive test first and now the trust test. And he begins by talking about little ones sinning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, that's a very graphic image that Jesus gives here. Now, it would be even more graphic uh, if you were a Jewish man living in this time because there were Jewish men who had revolted against the Roman government just maybe right around the same time And the Roman government, the officials arrested these men and they actually tied huge thousand pound millstones around their neck. They tied their neck to one end. They tied the the rope to the end of the millstone. It was a huge one. And they threw it in to the Sea of Galilee and they sunk down to the bottom. That was going on in this day. And so when Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him if he were killed as a traitor. Those are harsh words on the lips and from the lips of Jesus. We need to pay attention to this. Uh, The word that for sin that is used, if you cause a little one to sin, it's the word scandalizo, where we get the word to scandalize. And I think the better translation is not simply sin, but to stumble. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, you need to be careful with the way that you live your life. He has a child in his arms. We saw this last week that he actually was holding a child while he was saying these things. And he says, look, if if anyone would cause a child who believes in me to stumble, judgment is coming for that person. Be careful. And then he goes on to talk about um, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut off your foot. If your eye causes you to sin, he uses the word for actually stick your finger in and pluck it out. Graphic words. Did y'all know this morning when y'all were coming to church that you'd hear about this? These are on the lips of Jesus. Gouge out your eyes if they cause you to sin. What is he talking about here? Well, this is just it. As Christians, we need to take the reality of sin seriously. We need to be reminded here that that our sin has consequences. Our sin can cause others to stumble. We need to be reminded of that. We also need to be reminded that, that our sin is so serious that we need to take drastic and radical measures to make sure we do not sin. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. Now, I don't think he's being literal when he says this. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. No, 
He's not being literal. He's being figurative. He's using, he's basically speaking in hyperbole. If you go back a few chapters in chapter 7, Jesus says, it's not your hand or your eye that causes you to sin, but it's your heart. Get to the root of the problem. There was a Puritan pastor named John Owen who was uh, over the, um, he, he was the priest in the Church of England, uh, the Puritan, he was a Puritan, but he was still a priest, and uh, he was over Oxford for a time. Uh, in Oxford at the time, teenagers went to university, so 12-year-olds went to university. John Owen, the Puritan pastor, who was probably the greatest of all the Puritan pastors, preached a series of sermons to young teenage boys called the mortification of sin. The word mortification means killing, to put to death sin. Um, Imagine this, teenagers, again, going to college, their ages being in college, hearing sermons on putting to death sin. Y'all can put to death sin. Y'all can do the hard work of putting to death sin by the work of the Spirit in your life. You do not have to be a slave to sin. And by God's grace, he allows us, even young people, to put to death sin. And here's one of the tests. Do you care about sin? Do you care about it because you know that sin will send you to hell? It's just that serious. You need to take it seriously. And John Owen, when he talked to these teenagers about the mortification of sin... The one thing that came out, the one point that he made week after week after week is you better be killing sin or sin will be killing you. For the Christian, if you are not killing sin, sin is killing you. Take it seriously. As Christians, here's the test. Christians will take sin seriously. Uh, There's a a rapper. I know. How many of you hip-hop artists? Y'all were on the way to church this morning. Y'all were listening uh, to hip hop, right? Nobody was. There's this rapper, very famous, the most famous one that's out there right now, K- Kendrick Lamar. He's a Christian. Um, and this week he said, you know what the real problem? I, he is the most popular hip hop artist in the United States today. And he said, you know what the problem is? The preachers are not preaching about sin. <laughs> there it is. We need to remind. Be reminded of our sin and reminded of the danger that our sin puts us in. Uh, for women who have a high risk of breast, breast cancer, they have preventative uh, mastectomies. <clears throat> it seems like such an extreme thing for a 20-year-old girl to say, nope, I'm going to have a mastectomy to prevent cancer from growing. What do we do about the sin that we see in our lives? We have a high risk of sin, don't we? If you don't think you do, you don't know your heart. What measures are you taking to prevent sin? I have a good friend who's a pastor who has a tendency to drink too much. He noticed this a few few years ago. He said, I got to stop. And it wasn't anything that anybody was coming to him and saying, look, I think you drink too much. I think you drink too much. He just said, no, my heart desires this thing. He started going to AA meetings. He just started doing those things himself. And he says, you know what? It's not for everyone. It's not that everyone has to do this. He says, my sin is so gross that I need to take measures to prevent this thing from happening. Do you know the things that your heart goes to instead of Christ? 
Are you killing the sin that is in your life? We need to do that. We need to be at work doing that because either sin, either we kill sin or sin kills us. There's a community part of this as well. We need help from each other. If you care about me, you will point out my sin to me. If you care about each other, if you care about your loved ones. Um, Teenagers, if your parents don't let you have a cell phone, it's because they love you. If they check your cell phone constantly, it's because they love you. Because of the dangers that are out there. They want to protect your heart. Maybe trust your parents a little bit. They're trying to help you kill the sin that is in your heart. But parents, <laughs> your, sin, your children are there to help you see the sin in your own heart. To see your pride, to see your anger. See those things. Thank God for your children. Kill sin in your life. And we can help each other to do that as well in a loving way. Finally, he gives a taste test. Look in verses fifty or, 40, or uh, verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus says salt over and over and over. Salt, 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 salt. This is difficult. I don't, I don't, I mean, it might sound easy, uh, but go home. I just challenge you, go home and read uh, verse 49 and try to figure out what Jesus is saying. This is It's difficult to figure it out because Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire. What in the world? You don't don't fire people with salt. You fire people with fire. So what's Jesus talking about? I think this is my best educated guess that I can give that he's probably talking about a refiner's fire. Refiner's fires in this day, people who worked with metal, uh, they would line their very extremely hot ovens with salt. Because salt does not burn that quickly, right? So uh, that's probably what he's mentioning when he says you will be salted with fire. I think the disciples probably hear that and understand what he's talking about. A refiner's fire. And what he's saying there is that everyone is going to go through the, the fire of judgment. Do you realize that? Kenny will oftentimes say, um, what, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then... At one point, a couple of years ago, I said, yes, but there is judgment, and he will always say that. There is no condemnation, but there is judgment. (laughs) Understand this, that believer and non-believer will be brought through judgment. That all of us, whether we believe in Christ or not, will have to stand before Christ in judgment one day. But that judgment is different for the one who believes in Christ. Um, I remember sitting in classes, taking tests. I'm so thankful I don't have to take those tests anymore. It was terrifying to do that unless you had studied, which I oftentimes didn't do. (laughs) And I was terrified. And then when I did, I thought, why don't I study? It's so much more pleasant to go into it knowing that you know. Well, here's, here's, what it, here, here's what this is. Believers, the, the fire that Jesus talks about is a fire of torment. The worm never dies. The punishment never ends. But for the believer, the fire is one of proving. Um, refiners will take metal and they will stick it in the fire. And then as it heats up, all of the impurities burn out. But the metal itself comes out pure. And that's what Jesus is saying. Believers, 
The fire is one of testing. The, the fire is one of purification. And for believers, we have nothing to fear because Christ is ours. And then Jesus switches metaphors into, into verse 50. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost saltiness, how will you make it salty again? The point there is you can't make saltless salt salty. <laughs> you can't make salt, saltless salt salty. If it doesn't have the taste of salt, you can't do anything to make it Salty again. And Jesus says, look, if you have salt, meaning if you have taste, if you are a believer, then it'll show and everyone will know it. And this is that famous thing where Jesus says, be the salt of the earth. And as Christians, we are to be salt to the world. Salt is, uh, is for the sake of preserving. Uh, we don't use it for that very much now, but bacon is covered in salt. The reason why it's salty, the reason why it tastes so good is because it's been purified by the salt. Jesus says, I want you to be like the salt that wraps bacon. How great is that? Be like the salt that is covering bacon to make it last longer. Go and be the salt of the world and preserve the things of the world in your occupation and what you do. Work hard for his sake. Bring glory to God in your work. Bring glory to God in your relationships as a mother or a father or a son or a daughter. Do the work of salting the world in that way by being preservatives, by preserving the world from sin. Secondly, he says, uh, be a seasoner in the world. That's what salt is used for. Makes things taste better. Have you eaten anything without salt on it? Try it, go home and make a, mash, make, make a baked potato and don't put any salt on it. It's terrible. <laughs> so don't do that. Put lots of salt on it. And then as you're salting your potato, think, I need to be like this. I need to make everything I touch better. Because that's what Jesus has given you to do. Christians are people that make things better. The taste test. Look, about, look in your lives. Look at the relationships that you're in. Is, by your very presence there, are things better or worse? Well, by Christ, by the, by the power of the Spirit, He's empowered you as a believer to make things better, to make things taste better and go better. Not perfect, we're not saying that. But are your relationships touched with the seasoning that, that we're supposed to have? And, and He winds all this up by just giving you a very simple way to understand all of this. He says, be at peace with one another. That's, that's what Jesus gets across here. All of this started, look in verse 33. All of this started because the disciples were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus brings it all back around. He says, stop worrying about who the greatest is. Don't worry about that. Be at peace with one another. And that's the charge for us. We need to be at peace with each other in this room. We need to be at peace as much as we can be with people who are outside of this room. We especially need to be at peace with other believers. The, the Apostle John, the, the Apostle of love, says they will know us by our love. Our love for one another. If people can't look at you and say, well, they're a very loving person then they will not know Jesus in you. So what are you like? Are you combative? Are you harsh? Are you hard to be around? Or are you salt in the world? 
it's a good opportunity for us to step back, evaluate our lives, to see if we, if we truly care about others, to see if we are tasting good, <laughs> be at peace with one another. Um, now, how do you do all of these things? How do, you, how do you live your life as a disciple of Christ? It, you don't get the power from that in simply making yourself do it. You can't do it. The only way you have the power is to go back to Christ. To go back and see the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. You go back and you look at the sacrifice that Christ made for you. You see, in order for you to stand before God in judgment, Jesus had to fall in judgment before his beloved Father. And on the cross, he took the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin. Every last bit of it. In a minute, we're going to drink the cup of communion, the cup, the blood of Christ. And it's a reminder to us that Christ drank down the very last drop of God's wrath for you. The way that you have power to do these things is to believe in Jesus, believe in his finished work on the cross for you. And the great thing about being a Christian, the great thing about coming to church this morning is you get to have a physical reminder in this meal that we're about to take of what Christ has done for you. You get to taste and see that the Lord is good so that you can leave here and share that great taste with others. Let's pray and ask for God uh, to meet with us during this supper. Our Father, we thank you for giving us uh, this passage of Scripture. Uh, we pray, Father, that uh, you would help us to be your disciples, that we would see uh, that as your disciples uh, we are to care about sin, uh, that we are to take it seriously, that we are to, uh, to uh, make sure the rest of the world is flavored well because uh, you, um, you gave your life for us. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe these things. You help pray that we pray that you would help us to understand these things. Pray that you would help us to love one another well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.